So we bought a home in Midtown um, in 2013 and literally just searched Midtown churches. And at the time, it was the church at Midtown. Pastor Alex was preaching from the Epic series at the time. And my husband and I were both raised in church, um, felt like we knew the Bible well. But we sat there and felt like we have never heard anything like this from this very classic Old Testament story. I mean, it was just a, it was a whole new light. And so that kind of, it kind of captured us from that very first visit. It's actually the only church that we visited and tried, and we've been plugged in at Midtown ever since. And I feel like for me as a father and, and, and tasked with a spiritual leader to see Maggie, our six-year-old baptized this year, was a big deal. It was such a neat journey to to walk with her. I mean, this is, her eternity is, is secure. I know that she knows, and I know that Jesus is in her, in her heart. It's really cool to see that we have a church that we now are being spiritually fed and seeing those girls be, have, have ultimately eternal security. It's a big deal. Yeah, right now at the stage of our life, you know, we have a six, four and one year old and, and Although All In is a two-year commitment, um, it's really supposed to be a life change, right? And so as I think through what do they look like when they're 11, 14, and 16, you know, we'll have a driver now. And what does that mean when they're out driving around Tulsa or in high school? And, and I think through what are some of the nuggets that they're going to get today? the change that could be made in their lives today that are going to impact them in their teenage years. Giving really became personal for me um, through our time at Battle Creek. And I think the moment that that really resonates with me, and I don't remember exactly what year this would have been, but we were very much in the midst of this house project, um, lots of remodeling expenses, lots of time, and it, it just kind of got to a point where we felt like that was almost becoming our God in a way, um, in a way that we we realized just wasn't wasn't healthy, wasn't the right priority alignment. And for us, it, it came up about the time of the Christmas offering, and as we prayed over, you know, what what can we give? It just became a moment of, you know, it it can't be the house, it can't be this, it can't we can't put our time and our money all there. And so for us, it was kind of symbolic, but we gave our mortgage payment that Christmas offering. And ever since then, I feel like it's just been, we've wanted to give more and more and more. Um, and, it, and it kind of was a, you know, an illuminating moment, I guess, for us in terms of giving. Chelsea and I have talked a lot about this, kind of this time and money continuum and how a pendulum kind of swings in between and different stages of your life look different. You may have be rich in resources and poor in time. Or, or rich in time and poor in resources. And so to undertaking a huge uh, house project has been a big time and money consumer. One other thing that's been a source of dialogue for Kent and I as we approach this all-in season, and, and really before even, is our house. Um, you know, we have this old house that we've been restoring, working on for what seems like forever. Um, and in the midst, we've had three kids. And so, you know, it's an asset that's taken a lot of time, a lot of resources. Is it, do we need to 
sacrifice the time that we would have spent on the house to do something else? Do we need to, uh, you know, explore how do we free up those financial resources to do something else? And I think it's something that we're, we've, we're laying on the table and we're not sure yet what, what may come of that. And, and, but we know intuitively our greatest returns come from when we take our greatest risk. God is a much better steward at your stuff than you are. It's not even your stuff, right? That's been given to you. And so when you think about return on investment, you might not be able to calculate it, but you better know it's going to be worthwhile. Good morning. Let's try that again. Good morning. Hey, let me uh, just say this before we, we go forward, because uh, I don't know if your campus pastor said it or not, but here at the Broken Arrow campus, Josh did say it, and I feel like we just kind of just jumped over it, and actually, I feel like the recognition of it was really poor, uh, and, and so I'm going to give us another chance uh, on, on this fact that last weekend in our churches here in Tulsa, we saw 146 people make decisions for Jesus Christ. 146 people. That, that's phenomenal. And, and let me just put that in perspective because I know you're used to it. You've been around here a while. The average church in the United States of America is about 67 people. So we added two churches last Sunday in this church uh, to, to the kingdom of God, and we give him glory and honor for that. And I don't ever want us to lose sight of that church. I don't want us to lose sight of that. And, and could all of you here at Broken Arrow welcome those that are watching online and, and joining us from other campuses as well? Uh, Eric in California, welcome. Hope is a student at Pittsburgh State University. Welcome, Hope. We're so glad you're with us today. We got friends in Arizona, New Mexico, Illinois, uh, Nebraska, El Salvador, Egypt, just to name a few. So welcome uh, today. And for those of you who were with us on Wednesday night at the Union Performing Arts Center, wow. Just wow, 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 right? What a powerful night of worship and fellowship and the testimonies. Can I just say to those of you who shared uh, testimonies on stage, just from my heart to your heart, thank you. Uh, personally, I, would, I just want to thank you for doing that, to having the courage to do that, to be vulnerable in front of our whole church, to inspire the rest of us. And, and you did that. So thank you very much. And, and it makes me so excited, church, for this next Sunday that is coming, uh, Commitment Sunday. One week from today is Commitment Sunday. You cannot miss it. Okay. I'm just telling you, you cannot miss it. God is up to something in, in our church possibly like he has never been before. And, and uh, I'm not going to share any total numbers with you yet, because remember, our goal is, is 100% engagement. And, and so until everybody has an opportunity to get engaged, we're not going to share numbers. But I will share a couple of tidbits with you today that are really encouraging. Num number one is this, one quarter, 25%, one fourth of those who filled out cards at the advanced commitment night have never given before. Glory to God in that. And let me just say, uh, we, we have added hundreds and hundreds of people to our church in the last 12 months, and maybe you're one of those people, and maybe you've never given before at, at Battle Creek Church. A bunch of people just paved the way for you this past Wednesday night uh, for, for you to jump in and go all in with us. And so maybe today is that day for you uh, that you're going to make an initial gift and trust the Lord uh, with something that he has put in your hands, and we're so excited for you. Uh, and then others of you who have been faithful givers for years and years and years around here. The testimonies I heard, both 
both on the stage and at the little video uh, stations where you could share your story. Just wow. Even you who are already quite in are, are trying to figure out how to come more in church. And I'm so proud of you and I'm so proud to be your pastor. Meredith and I are so encouraged. And uh, as we shared, Meredith and I shared on Wednesday nights a little bit of the story behind our commitment that we're making uh, during All In. And uh, I'll just tell you today, we're, we're making by far the largest step of faith that we have ever taken, by far. And our generosity. And to know that so many of you are with us in that, that's incredibly encouraging. I can't wait till next Sunday when the whole, choice, the whole church joins together on that one goal of 100% engagement. And today, what I want to do for you, and this next to the last sermon in this series called All In, is I want to set some context for what it is we've been talking about. And I want to give you the big picture of what All In really means. This is a whole new sermon, rewrote it on Tuesday, or Monday and Tuesday of this week. And so it's not in your book. Uh, chapters 18 and 19 of Genesis is where I want you to go. If you got your Bible, uh, turn there. And if I were to put it into one word, this whole All In thing, there's several, it's very hard to put into one word. But if I were to try to narrow it down to one word today, the one word would be influence. Influence. That's what going all in is all about. And so write that word down. Let's pick it up in verse 1 of Genesis chapter 18. The Lord, by the way, circle that, the Lord. Uh, we're not going to move fast if we do this with every word in the, in the text. But, but I just want you to write beside that Yahweh. That's the name of God. That's the name Yahweh. It's not just like Lord, like we're going to see all throughout this text where he's talking to sirs. Uh, it, this is the name of God. So God is present in this story. Yahweh is present. He's one of the three okay, that show up. I don't think Abraham knows it yet, but he's going to find it out. Now look at what it says. The Lord appeared again to Abraham near the oak grove belonging to Mamre. One day, Abraham was sitting at the entrance to his tent during the hottest part of the day. Now, this is the amazing part of Hebrew. This is just a few words in Hebrew. And with just a couple of words, the, the author uh, has painted this picture for us. I don't know if you're like me, but I can see it, right? Like my minds can just see it, that he's sitting outside of his tent in the heat of the day. In my picture, the, the horizon is a bit blurry because it's so hot there in, in that Middle Eastern heat. And, and here's a question for you. You should ask questions of the scripture when you read it, by the way, where, why, how, what, why is Abraham sitting at the entrance of his tent in the heat of the day? Now, I don't know the answer, but the previous chapter, chapter 17, does tell us that he was just circumcised as a grown man. I think it's a good indicator as to why he's sitting uh, there at the entrance of his tent. Now, now look, look at verse 2. He looked up and noticed three men standing nearby. When he saw them, he ran, circle that word in your Bible, ran to meet them because much has been said and written about the patriarchs. Much has been said and written about how Middle Eastern men don't run. And I'll just say as one, we don't. Uh, absolutely never, ever, ever, unless somebody is chasing us, right? Absolutely true. Middle Eastern men don't run. In fact, it borders on crazy in that culture for a Middle Eastern man to run. Now, there's one exception. It's in the world of hospitality. It's unparalleled in the world. It's unmatched in the world. Middle Eastern hospitality. And you ask anyone across the Middle East, okay? It could be an Arab, a Palestinian, a Bedouin, an Israeli. Ask them why on earth, on the hospitality in their lives, and this is what they would say, 
We are the children of Abraham. That's why we're so hospitable. And by the way, they point back to this story. And hospitality has an unbelievable premium in the Middle East, an unbelievable value in the Middle East. Here uh, in America, if you are a server, a table server, a waiter, or a waitress, right? how many of you have done that before or doing that currently? Just raise your hand. Lots of people. And, and, and so it, it, what's the goal when you wait a table in America? The goal is to give good service, but the goal is to flip the table right? To get as many people sitting at that table over the course of your shift, because that increases your possibility of tips, etc. I'll just tell you in the Middle East, that is not the picture. Their goal is to keep you there as long as they possibly can. They are that relational. And the goals that they set is, I want you to have a good time. I want to serve you in such a way that you'll stay here as long as possible. Two o'clock in the morning, just stay and order again and order again and have a good time with your friends and let me take care of it so that you are comfortable. Hospitality. In fact, when you ask for the check in the Middle East, you have to do it carefully because it's a bit rude. And what you've just communicated to that server is, you're not doing a good job. We're ready to go. Now, I could tell you story after story of my own personal encounters with Middle Eastern hospitality, both with my family that live over there and with total strangers that, that I met for the very first time over there. There have been moments where we've wandered, me and a group of Americans, into a village, and, and what happens as you wander in is all the preschoolers of the town come running to greet you, come running to find you and, and to say hello to you. And you don't speak their language, they don't speak yours, but you're just loving on kids and they're loving on you. I've eaten dinner in homes many times where I know that the chicken that they went out and bought and butchered and fed to us is a week's wages for them. And what you don't dare do in that moment is offer to pay them. Because what you've done is rob them of the greatest joy in their lives. And look at what Abraham does. He sees them, he runs to meet them, he welcomes them, and then he bows low to the ground. And look at what he says, my Lord, by the way, not Yahweh, sir, my Lord, he said, if it pleases you, stop here for a while, rest in the shade of this tree while water is brought out to you to wash your feet. And since you've honored your servant with this visit, that's the way they view it, by the way, We've, you, you've honored me with your visit, let me prepare some food to refresh you before you continue on your journey. All right, they said, do as you have said. Verse 6, so Abraham ran back to the tent, he's running again, said to Sarah, let me just point out, Sarah, remember it, it was Sarai, we, I, I went to a great deal of intentionality to point out to you that Abram became Abraham, that he got his H, I got a message from a missionary in Germany who was watching our messages who said, Sarah got her H too, and, and I don't want you to miss that, it's not a man thing, it's a, it's a people thing, both of them got their H, and remember what I said, H, it's as if the Holy Spirit breathed upon them. So they both got it, okay? She's right in Germany. You're right. Hurry, get three large measures. Underline that phrase in your Bible. Three large measures of your best flour. Knead it into dough and bake some bread. You see how great the hospitality is here? He's going so out of his way. They are going so out of their way to cater to three people they don't even know. But by the way, this phrase, three large measures, as some of your Bibles say three selahs. I, I did a little research this week. Selah, three selahs is 60 pounds of flour. 60 pounds of flour. Now, I don't make a whole lot of bread, so I have no equation to put that into uh, myself, but, but I Googled it, and, and it will make somewhere between 75 and 100 loaves of bread. 
Keith Walker, our pastor at South Tulsa, used to run uh, a line at Bama. He was sitting there, and he texted somebody at Bama Pie, and, and they said that would make 700 biscuits. <laughs> they got three guests. Now, she didn't run out and buy these things. She is preparing these things for them. Now, back to my personal story of wandering into villages and being hosted by pastors and being hosted by Middle Eastern people. I I wonder today if you, this afternoon, are sitting on your porch in your neighborhood and you see 40 uh, Arabs walking up the street. Are you sending your preschoolers to greet them? Are you going inside? Are, are, are you unlocking the door and flinging it open, or are you locking the door? By the way, in our city, we're going to have 800 of them move here. And, and the church of Jesus better do something with that and better do something about that. But, but I'm not pointing my finger at you when I declare what would you do in that moment. I'm saying what would we do in that moment, because I'll just confess to you, I am Middle Eastern, and I would be worried about my security. And I would be worried about my own fear. And it's as if God is addressing that in this text. And he is saying to Abraham, hey, if you're going to function out of fear and insecurity, we're not going to be able to put the world back together, Abraham. But, but in fact, let me just say it in a New Testament context. In the New Testament, it would be worded this way. The kingdom of God can't come there. The kingdom of God can't come to that place. It can't come to the place ruled by fear. It can't come to the place ruled by insecurity. But in an atmosphere of trust, yes, the kingdom of God can come on full display. We can trust that we can lay our lives down in front of other people. Why? Because God's got this. He can take care of this. And therefore, as the children of God, I can declare with faith, I will function out of generosity. I will function out of hospitality. I will function in trust. I will function in self-sacrifice. In fact, I think the narrative of Abraham is so flooded with self-sacrifice, that's why God gave him the mark of the covenant, because his life was flooded with self-sacrifice. In fact, Jews call this story in the Bible a miracle. They refer to it as the miracle of radical generosity. In fact, write this down. This is a lesson out of this text. If you offer yourself in radical generosity to others, God will work miracles in the way that you offer your life to others. It's a promise. It's a promise. He will work miracles in the way that you offer your life to others. Let's keep reading. Verse 7. Then Abraham ran out, he's running again, to the herd and chose a tender calf, which means that these Bible characters were not vegetarians, and gave it to their servants who quickly prepared it. Verse 8, when the food was ready, Abraham took some yogurt and milk, which I got questions for some of my Jewish friends there who say you can't mix meat and dairy. Abraham did. Father Abraham had many sons. I'm one of them, and so are you. Let's eat a cheeseburger. (laughs) And he served it to the men. As they ate, Abraham waited on them in the shade of the trees. Where is Sarah, your wife, the visitors asked. She is inside the tent, Abraham replied. Then one of them said, I will return to you about this time next year, and your wife, Sarah, will have a son. Sarah was listening to this conversation from the tent. Abraham and Sarah were both very old by this time, and Sarah was long past the age of having children. So she laughed silently to herself and said, how can a worn out woman like me enjoy such pleasure, especially when my master, my husband, is also so old? That means exactly what you think it means. 
and it's in the Scripture, right? And, and, and look at what he says. Then the Lord said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh? Why did she say, can an old woman like me have a baby? Is anything too hard for the Lord? There it is, Yahweh again. Is anything too hard for Yahweh? Luke tells us, chapter 1, verse 37, nothing is impossible for him. That an old, worn-out woman can have a baby. In fact, a young, unmarried virgin can also have a baby in the story of God. And it's as if prophecy is coming out of this story that God can produce from a womb that is closed whatever he wants to. So, so for those of you who are here today and you say, my business is busted, my bank account is dried up, my, my retirement is tattered, my resume is screwed up, I've got too much junk in my past, the, the diagnosis is this. Let me just say to you today, God can work with that. He can work with that. Now look at what the scripture goes on to say. I will return about this time next year, and emphatically, Sarah will have a son. Sarah was afraid, so she denied it, saying, I didn't laugh, but the Lord said, no, you did. I love it, actually. There's like a little Hebrew ditty playing out right here at the end of this story. And before we jump into the rest of the story, let me make two initial observations, okay? Today is a little more teaching than it is preaching, and this is just me working through a text this last week, and I'm just laying it out before you today. Here's two of my initial observations. Number one, God blesses generosity and hospitality because it looks like him. He blesses it. Generosity and hospitality, he blesses. And here's the second initial observation. There is a priestly role in the rest of this story about to play out. Okay, and, and you know the story, and, and I've, I've read part of it, but let me just summarize it again in case you were nodding off. Three mysterious men have come down to talk with Abraham. They have two purposes for their visit. One is to announce to Sarah, Abraham's wife, that she's pregnant, right? Two, they intend to destroy two very wicked cities, Sodom and Gomorrah. Sodom and Gomorrah were notorious not only for their carnality, but for their cruelty and their oppression of the poor. So these three men meet Abraham and Sarah. They announce Sarah's pregnancy. And so remember, they have two agendas. Check on the first one. Happy news over. We checked it off. We told them she's pregnant. Now, real quick, who are these three mysterious men? Well, I've already alluded to the fact that one of them is God. God is showing up. He's referring to himself in the first person. We assume the other two are angels. And, and so they tell Abraham what they're going to do to Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, if you remember, we talked about it a few weeks ago. Lot, Abraham's nephew, lives in Sodom. You remember? He lives there. So we can assume when, Lot, when Abraham starts arguing with God about destroying Sodom that, that we think it's about his nephew that he doesn't want to be destroyed. Now watch how this plays out. Verse 23. So Abraham approached him. Circle that word approached. That's a legal term, okay? In other words, it's, it's like, may I approach the bench, your honor. That's what that word uh, refers to. It's as if it's a term that would, would be used in a court of law. In other words, what they're telecasting here is that Abraham's about to go to court with God. Now watch what he says. What if there are 50 righteous people in the city? You've read this before. Will you really sweep it away, not spare the place for the sake of 50 people? And God says, no, I'll spare it for 50. And Abraham says, well, what if there are only 45? Surely that five would not make the difference between destruction and salvation, God. And now what you get the picture here is exactly what you think is happening. Abraham is haggling with God. 
like you would haggle over the price of a bunch of bananas with a street vendor in Egypt. And here's the amazing part. God plays along. And it's like anybody 30, 30, 30, I'll take 30. How about 30, 25? Anybody 25, 15, 15, 15, 15, 10, 10, done. And he gets to 10. Now, here's the question you ought to ask yourself, especially if you have Middle Eastern context. Why would he stop at 10? Okay, there's a couple of intriguing questions for an Eastern mind in this text. Is first of all, why is Abraham praying for this city, Sodom, in the first place? I used to think it was simply uh, doing it for the sake of his nephew, Lot, to keep God from destroying the city so that Lot would not be harmed. But you have to know this, Abraham could have asked for that directly. He could have said, hey, God, uh, I know you need to destroy the wicked people, Sodom and Gomorrah. Go ahead and destroy them. Give me a couple of days to airlift Lot out of there before you go in there and carpet bomb the whole place, right? Then do whatever you want to to the rest of them. That would have been easier. And not only would it have been easier, it would make much more sense, honestly. Because not only are these people in Sodom really wicked, they were especially unkind to Abraham personally. Now remember, they're the ones who kidnapped Lot and went to war with Abraham. But instead of doing that and talking to God that way, Abraham stood before God and asked for mercy for the whole city. And by the way, he put himself at risk in doing that. He noticed when you look at the text, he keeps saying to God, God, don't be mad. God, don't be mad. He's pushing God, putting himself on the line for them. Now, here's the second question. Why did Abraham stop at 10? As far as negotiations go, Abraham seems to have been on a roll. He'd gotten God down from 50 to to 10. So why stop there at that moment, right? Every negotiator, and I don't know if you are one or not, but it's born in Middle Eastern people. And and so I was born with it. One time I was selling a house, got a full offer. The realtor said, you got a full offer. I said, that means we didn't ask enough. Go back. And she said, that's not how it's done. I said, go back. And we ended into another conversation. Why? Because the negotiator kicks in. As a negotiator, you press as far as you can to the lowest price. If you're buying a used car and you, somebody is selling you a used car and you end up in a conversation with somebody with a used car, you know the car is worth $30,000. Okay, Linda, you come first, first offer out of the chute, you punch them in the lips, right? First offer, what do you do? $30,000, what do you say? Would you take ten? So that's crazy. Let me tell you what my dad taught me in Egypt. When you go to the streets in Egypt, you start at one-tenth of what they offer. That's where you start in the negotiation. I, sell, I teach Americans that when we go to the Middle East, and they're like, I just pay it. And I'm like, you robbed them of their hobby. This is what these kids, this is what they do. And now it's like playing golf. Just write the score down. We won't play. They want to play, and they want to be a part of it. And so if they say, yes, I'll give it to you for 10, I'd be happy to, you should follow up with, would you take five? You're so enthusiastic about the 10, would you take five? And if they say, okay, five sounds great, then you go, would you take a grand, right? And if they say, yes, I'll take a grand, you say, would you pay me to take this car off of your hands? That's intuitive for a negotiator like Abraham. So why didn't Abraham do that? Why doesn't he haggle God down from 10 to one righteous person? And by the way, when you read the text, it seems like the whole conversation just ends. Like it's just over. God just walks away. The conversation is over. Now, I want to show you something that I found this week. I saw this week. Never seen it before. All the times I've read it, never seen this before. Now, let's jump to the next chapter. And when we go to the next chapter, keep this question in your mind. Why did Abraham stop at 10? Okay, keep that in mind. Genesis chapter 19, verse 1. 
That evening, the two angels, same two, by the way, came to the entrance of the city of Sodom. Now, there's something happening here in the Hebrew, and it's easier to see in the Hebrew than in the English. There is a parallel, a chiasm again, that's being set up, one versus the other. It's almost like they want you to see a chart with these two chapters, okay? You got Abraham in one, you got Lot in the other. You got two angels coming here, you got two angels coming here, right? Lot was, say it. Have we seen that before? We just saw it, right? Who else was sitting? Say it like you were here three minutes ago. Who else was sitting? Abraham was sitting. Now watch this. When he saw them, we read that phrase too. When he saw them, he stood up to meet them. He welcomed them, bowed with his face to the ground. It's a parallel story. Same story, new character. Okay. Now the Hebrew is trying to point something out to us here. Verse two, my Lords, he said, same phrase, come to my home and wash your feet and be my guest for the night. Are you seeing this? Lot has learned this hospitality from his uncle and from his culture. And these two chapters are supposed to be laid side by side on purpose. Now look at what he says. You may get up early in the morning and be on your way again. Oh no, they replied. We'll just spend the night out here in the city square. What's Lot do? No way. He insisted. He insisted. So they went home with him. Lot prepared a feast for them complete with fresh bread, which you're like, are you kidding me? Another carb, right? I mean, how many loaves of bread can these angels possibly eat? Made without yeast, and they ate. But before they retired for the night, all of the men of Sodom, young and old, came from all over the city and surrounded the house. So Lot stepped outside to talk to them, shutting the door behind him. Please, my brothers, he begged, do not do such a wicked thing. He's protecting his guests. Look, I have two virgin daughters. Let me bring them out to you, and you can do with them as you wish, but please leave these men alone, for they are my guests and under my protection. Now, before you vomit in your mouth, you have to see this through a Middle Eastern lens. He's practicing hospitality. Those of us in America would say, well, why not offer yourself? He knows he's the provider and the protector. If he goes, the whole family goes down the toilet and in the drain. He knows that. You have to read this with a Middle Eastern mindset. But, but here's what happens. The men of Sodom and Gomorrah who are wicked come to the Lord's house and say, we saw those two guys that you brought in as guests. We, we want them. And when I say want, it's not that they want to fight them. It's perverse. And it's disgusting. And there's no two ways about it. But Lot steps out of his house and tries to, watch it, negotiate with them. Do you see the stories laid side by side? And he says, instead of these two guys, take my two virgin daughters. And you can start to see how Lot is being influenced by this wicked place, Sodom and Gomorrah, instead of being an influencer on this wicked place. Now, now keep reading. Look at verse 12. Meanwhile, the angels questioned Lot. Do you have any other relatives here in this city, they asked. Get them out of this place. Your sons-in-law, your sons, your daughters, or anyone else. Now circle these three phrases. Your sons-in-law, your sons, and daughters. Now let's just play a little game here like we're on Sesame Street. Your sons-in-laws means it's at least how many? Two. It's not a trick question. Sons, with an S at the end, means there are at least how many? Two. Your sons means there are at least how many? Two. And remember last week I told you ben is the Hebrew word for son. Bena'ah is the plural word for sons. This is bena'ah. It's on purpose. There's no mistaking. It's plural. And then he says your daughters. 
okay? So now we know there's two sons-in-law, right? So we know there's at least two daughters, right? So, so there would be two daughters there. But what did he just tell us in the few verses before? He also has two daughters that are not married or are virgins. Now do the math here. That's how many people? Eight. Two sons, two sons-in-laws, and four daughters. You follow the math? And then Lot and his wife. Ding, 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 ding. Ten. Ten. The number Abraham stopped at. So Abraham knew there were ten people in Lot's family. The conversation did not stop like we think. It is a continuation. This chapter is a continuation of the conversation between God and and Abraham. And the angels left and they went to Lot to see if Lot has any influence. And what they find is that Lot is not even able to influence his own family. Now write this down. In the economy of God, in the economy of God, an imperfect city with 10 righteous influencers has potential. A wicked city with 10 righteous influencers in the economy of God has potential. The issue in a city and no city is the wickedness. Why? Because every city has wickedness. The issue is, is there the presence of influence of the righteous? A wicked city with righteous influencers is really, in the eyes of God, a righteous city in progress. Why? Because the role of the righteous is influence. Now watch this. So Lot rushed out. He's running to tell his daughters and fiancés, quick, get out of the city. The Lord is about to destroy it. Destroy it. Bring the young men, but the young men thought he was only joking. Now in the Hebrew, that's a, kind of a, a loose translation there. They viewed him as a joker. Does the world view you or me as jokers? See, the world can view us as jokers or the world can view us as influencers. The, 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 the world can see us as we worship God in heaven at, at, like we're the real deal or like we're jokers. And we can cry and complain and wish we had influence. We can do the right things and have the right theology, follow people who are doing it right, like Lot was following after Abraham. But if we don't have the heart of Abraham, we will not have the influence of Abraham. And, and, and listen, this is what all in is all about. The role of the righteous is influence. Why is Abraham doing this? Because Abraham understands that God has chosen him for this. He has chosen him to be a channel of his blessing. He has chosen him to be a channel of his mercy to the nations. In fact, go back to verses 17 and 18, previous chapter. Look at it. Then the Lord said, shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? No, he's part of the plan. I've already told him he's going to be a part of the plan. Abraham will become a great and powerful nation and All the nations on earth are going to be blessed through him. God shared the plan with Abraham so that he could ask for these places to be blessed instead of destroyed. And Abraham understood that. And so he steps up to fulfill his destiny. You you say, but they were unkind to Abraham. They didn't deserve that blessing. They didn't deserve that mercy. But Abraham understood that he had been unkind to God himself. 
And he did not deserve that rich blessing that he had been given. He knew he had failed time and time and time again, but God had blessed him anyway, even though he had failed God. So now it just makes sense to ask for similar mercy to be shown to Sodom and Gomorrah. I say it makes sense. It doesn't make sense unless you see yourself as a recipient of great grace. But when you see yourself as a recipient of unfathomable grace, you instinctively develop a desire to see it extended to others. That, by the way, is the difference between an influencer and a joker. See, this story leaves us with a question that can't be answered until the New Testament. Is there anyone righteous enough who can plead on behalf of the wicked? Isaiah, I point this out every Christmas, 750 years before Jesus' birth, foretells in great detail the horrors of the cross that Jesus will have to suffer upon. But in chapter 53, you know Isaiah 53 is that messianic prophecy. Verse 6 is, I taught my kids that when they were very little. We like sheep, we all like sheep have gone astray. We left God's path to follow our own. And it goes on to say, but here's what God did. Verse 11 of, of, of that passage, look at what Isaiah says. God will see the suffering of his soul and be, say it, satisfied. He will be satisfied. And because of his experience, my righteous servant will make it possible for many to be counted righteous, for he will bear all their sins. Battle Creek Church, that's why God has placed us in this community. That's why, listen, it is our divine destiny. He has put us here to bless Tulsa and America and the world. And our placement here is proof that he wants to extend mercy to Tulsa, America, and the world. And, and it's proof he's not done with Tulsa, America, and the world. And God is always looking for someone. And it's not that they deserve it. And it's not that we're obligated to them personally. Any more than Sodom deserved the grace that Abraham gives. We owe it to Jesus, church. To Jesus. Look at what my friend David Platt says. Every saved person, this side of heaven, owes the gospel to every unsaved person this side of hell. Now let's review the ideas we've talked about in, in, in this text. We talked about hospitality. We talked about generosity. We talked about sacrifice and trust and, and, and the big one. I mentioned it many times. Influence. In fact, that's what these four are all about. Hospitality is not meant to make us feel good. 
It's not so that we'll have a lot of friends and people will like us. It's so that we can have influence on the world around us. Generosity is not about what we get in return. Well, I'll plant and sow, and then you know my account will get big. No, no, no. We, we give so that others are blessed. Why? So that we have influence. We, we don't sacrifice for others because we have to, right? Well, that, that's not the way that it plays out. We do it so that we may have influence. Why? The role of the righteous is influence. And God made a promise uh, uh, that, that the sons of Abraham would be as numerous as the stars are in the sky. And, and we can ask with confidence because Jesus died to bring that promise to completion and to fulfillment. Jesus had a promise to fulfill. And listen, he died to keep that promise, not so that a group of scared Christians can huddle up together and hang out until the rapture happens like Lot was hiding in his house. It's so that we could have influence. It's so that we could help all people of all ages, all the time, advance in their journey with Jesus Christ. And you know what else he tells us to boot? The gates of hell can't stop us. They can't stop us. And we, Battle Creek Church, because we are under obligation to Tulsa, and unreached people, groups, and cities of the world, our lives and ministries should look different. And as I've told you throughout this series, the question for me and Meredith last year or so is no longer about how much are we giving or how much should we give. That question left the port a long time ago. The question now at the table is what are we not giving and why? What is it that we're not giving and why? I heard of a South African church where the the, the South African pastor wrote this as the mission statement for his church, whole mission statement for the whole church. And it, it, it says it this way, people without Jesus go to hell. That's it. It's the whole mission statement. When asked about it, he's like, what else needs to be said? Unlike Abraham, we know that there is one counted righteous enough to spare the city. No matter how wicked because of the one righteous one who died in its place. And so now he commands us uh, to, to go, but to also ask boldly in his name. And that when we do, he promises that he has bound himself to hear it. And so I repeat, God put us here for this time and for this purpose to reach people, to raise up leaders, to multiply all over the world for the sake of the gospel. And here's the beautiful thing. Our success is as sure as the stars that come out every night. So we need to ask big. And we need to dream big because Jesus' sacrifice to our world demands it. Here's the beautiful thing. In this all-in series, what we're doing as a church in this season matters. It matters. It matters because by us believing God and trusting God, we will change the eternities of people in this community and across the world. Think about that for a second. What we're going to do will change people's eternities. Last week, 146 of them. Because Abraham followed and obeyed. We're here. 
Who's going to look at us and say, because they followed and obeyed, we're here. But because Abraham trusted God, you're here today. Who's going to look at you and say, because he or she trusted God, I'm here. Because Abraham prioritized God, surrendered to God, and believed God for big things, we're here. Who who is going to look at us and say, because they believed God big and surrendered and trusted God, we're here. These are the questions that should keep us up at night. Let's stand together across all of our campuses and let's make that creed we've been making for the last four weeks together. And let's say it louder than we've ever said it before. Let's declare it with a little more confidence in this place. Would you throw it on the screen? Would you read it with me? God, awaken us from our slumber. Attune us to the movement of your spirit empower us to be a people who are truly all in. We desire to surrender ourselves fully to you. Show us how you want us to give generously as you have given generously to us. Equip us, God, to help all people of all ages, all the time, advance in their journey with you. Jesus, we desire to go all in. Would you give God glory in this place and thank you.